Following our winter retreat each year, a makeshift lost and found is sure to appear somewhere in the building. When you have over a hundred people, bring along all those clothes and accessories that are necessary for a winter retreat, you can count on some things getting lost, maybe a lot of things getting lost, as seems to be the case this year. Losing things and finding them is just part of life, isn't it? I think I probably speak to every one of you, you could go back not too far in time and there was some very frustrating situation at home where you misplaced something. You could not find it anywhere. And you search high and low, looking for it, knowing it had to be there, and then at last you found it and you were relieved. Sometimes the search is simply frustrating. Sometimes there's higher stakes. I think of a little girl who has lost her favorite stuffed animal the one that listens to all of her problems, the one that goes to bed with her every night, her constant companion and stuffed animal is lost. And there are tears. There's great consternation. In fact, the whole family is stressed out over the ordeal. Where is that animal? There's no replacing it. And then the animal is found. And it is given hugs and kisses to make up for all the lost hugs and kisses of the days it's been lost. And the whole family breathes a sigh of relief as this declaration is made. I have found my stuffed animal. Which probably has a name, but I didn't come up with a name here. Sometimes the lost gets even more serious. We've been watching on the news perhaps December 26th. Of this past year, Sri Lankan Janita Jayaraja was holding her two-year-old son, Abbas, when that tsunami wave hit and ripped that child from her arms. If you can imagine that experience. The mother made this desperate search for her baby in the waters as they receded back to the ocean, but the boy was gone. But in the providence of God, when Janita searched for her son, he was discovered in the midst of some debris and mud and pulled out of the mud and rescued. He had some physical trauma from it, but he was alive and taken care of and rushed to the hospital. He was called Baby 81 because he was the 81st person to be brought to the coastal hospital of Kalmanai that day. Problem was, no one knew who he was. At two months old, of course, he couldn't speak, and there was no way to know who his parents were. So there's his mother and father continuing to search for their lost son, and he's in the hospital. Now their search takes them there, and you can imagine the joy when they put their eyes on their baby and saw that he was there and well. He had been found lost but now found and then a seven week long court case to prove that he was in fact their baby only heightened their relief and elation when that son was once again placed in their arms he was lost he was found and this family now is rejoicing i want you to stop and think a moment as we think of this lost and found theme
I believe that one reason that God has ordained the lost and found motif in human experience is that we might better know Him. Grasp for a moment the joy of this couple that they, as they experienced taking again their child in their arms who they thought was gone forever. Get just a basic sense of the joy that is there and you touch something real and vital in the heart of God. In fact, as we enter Luke chapter 15 this morning, the joy of finding something that was lost explains why Jesus Christ is eating with sinners. Now that may not seem to make a whole lot of sense on the face of things, but let's listen in as he explains and puts together this motif of lost and found and shows us his heart and the heart of God through it. We read of the situation that is brewing around Jesus, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You can hear them muttering in their beard to one another, irritated with Jesus for meeting with such people. A common criticism, in fact, of Jesus, tax collectors and sinners were the moral dregs of Israeli society. The task of the religious elite was to keep away from these people. If a sinner or a tax collector came and asked you to teach them the law, the rabbinical rule was you don't even teach them the law. They're outcasts spiritually. Tax collectors, we've met them before in Jesus' company. And this is what scandalizes these religious leaders, that Jesus keeps meeting with these people. These tax collectors raised revenues for the Roman Empire that ruled Israel with an iron fist. So in the mind of the self-righteous Jews, tax collectors were people who sold their soul to the enemy. They exploited the chosen people of God for their own personal gain. And so the rabbis refused to have anything to do with them. They were despised. They were tax collectors. They were sinners. A category, a category that we find from the rabbi's writings that included someone who had committed murder, a robber, a deceiver, or anyone involved in a dishonorable vocation. The sense was that you could choose your vocation, but there were individuals who chose vocations that hurt other people or that despise the law of God. So it ranged from the prostitute on one side to the tax collector on the other. Anyone who chose a vocation where it meant that they lived in daily violation of God's will was an outcast, was someone in rebellion against God, and someone to be despised as far as the rabbis were concerned. And here is Jesus eating with them. Remember this theme of the sacred sense of a meal in Israeli society. It was essentially a sacred act. Those that you ate with, or those that you loved, or at least respected, there was some relationship there that allowed you to have this meal together. And here is Jesus eating with sinners. Now the sinners were invited to the public meals of the Pharisees and the great religious leaders of the day as they talked religion. But where were they? 
They weren't at the table. They stood around at the back and listened in to the conversation. But to recline at table with a sinner and a tax collector was in a sense to commune with them and to fellowship with them and to identify with them. People who had chosen to live in blatant disregard of God's law, you sit down with them at table. Something's wrong with your heart. That was the thinking of the rabbis. But Jesus knew these people were living in violation of God's law. That wasn't news to him. And that is precisely why he is eating with them. His purpose is not to encourage their moral rebellion by any means, but his purpose is to rescue them as a soul shepherd. Jesus had a grip on this thought. People can change. And he lived his life with that notion and went after that at every possibility. People can change. And he illustrates then to these religious observers who are critiquing him with three parables what is really in his heart and what is really in the heart of God. Why is he eating and identifying with these sinners? Let me tell you a story, says Jesus. Verse 3. Telling them this parable, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. That might strike us as a little overdone, doesn't it? But records from that day confirm that a lost sheep could be a community event. Everyone would worry over this lost sheep. It, it, it misses us because we do not live in a pastoral culture, a culture that is oriented toward the, toward the keeping of flocks. But when shepherds in your community daily put their life on the line to protect sheep, those sheep are very important to you as a community because those shepherds are very important to you as a community on some level. And so there are records of people finding sheep and coming back and the whole community rejoicing together that the sheep has been found. Makes perfect sense to the people that Jesus is speaking to here in their context. But verse 7 takes this parable and drives it home to those to whom Jesus speaks. I tell you, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. Can you grasp the joy of a shepherd who recovers a lost sheep? If so, then you are on your way to discerning the joy God experiences when a sinner repents and returns to the Lord. God is bullish on repentance. He loves it. It makes his heart sing with joy. So why is Jesus reclining at table with these sinners? Because they're lost sheep. And as the good shepherd, he is out to recover the lost sheep, to put them on his shoulders and to bring them home to God. He tells another parable at verse 8, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? 
Again, this completely misses us. You drop a coin on the floor and it's right there on the floor in front of you in our setting. But think of their setting. First of all, the homes tended to have no windows in them at all, just a very low door. We would probably need to duck under the door to get in. That's the only light there is. And so a lamp would have to be lit. It was dark in the homes. But on top of that, and more significantly here, the floors were of dirt. And to keep the dirt down, they would throw on some foliage, some old uh, husks or something of the like, to keep the dirt down and serve sort of, sort of as a mat or our carpet. We're, we're highly privileged, aren't we? But they'd walk around on this stuff, and if you drop a coin in the dark down on that kind of a floor, it could take quite a search to find the coin. Well, this woman loses one of her ten coins. It's worth about a day's wage. So it's not highly significant in that context, but is something that's very important to her. And some have suggested, at least we know in later times, and perhaps this is true in Jesus' time, women, this would be a woman's dowry. She would wear this on her head as she was married. She would come with this silver chain and these coins on the chain, and she would wear that on her head. It would identify her as married, but it would also be a sort of savings on your hat kind of idea. This was your dowry and you needed this money. At any rate, she needs the money and she is concerned about the coin that has been lost. And so she begins the very hard work of by lamplight, a little oil lamp in this dark place, digging through the husks on the floor and the dirt and trying to find this coin that has fallen into the dirt. So as she sweeps, she finds it. But she gives great and diligent effort. You've maybe been there somewhere in some way, the proverbial needle in the haystack as you're looking through for it. I remember uh, as we were early in our marriage and one of the tests of our marriage that we passed was that I sucked up with a vacuum cleaner a pair of Beth's favorite earrings. <laughs> and it was uh, quite a consternation as to what we would do. As one of those pairs of earrings that was given by a special friend, you couldn't replace that. And so, as a dutiful young husband, I got out the vacuum cleaner and found that, of course, the bag was absolutely full of garbage and dug through that down in the sink one little piece of garbage at a time and looked at our life for the past two months and what we'd picked up off the carpet. And there, finally, of course, as you would know, about nine-tenths into it all were the pearl earrings that were given by her friend. And I'll tell you, I was one excited guy. I was off the hook on this one. And I came back, this is, we were in an apartment, this was downstairs in the laundry room, but I came running back and showing her the earrings and I was so excited to have found those earrings. You've been there somewhere, somehow, finding something that's so hard to find. Oh, how does she respond? Verse 9. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Now, we're a lot more subdued as a culture. Well, you, you might make a phone call and just say, Hey, thanks for thinking about me. You know that thing that I lost? I found it. Appreciate your thoughts. Something like that. But for her in this culture, it was a time of rejoicing, time to celebrate. Some have likened it, perhaps, if the wedding idea is the case, it's something like a wedding ring that she has lost. We don't know. It doesn't matter. But the point is that she greatly rejoices when she finds the lost coin. So, what does Jesus say? What's his point? Verse 10. 
In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's one little coin, but there's great rejoicing. It's one little sheep, but there's great rejoicing. There is great rejoicing similarly in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. By the way, that doesn't mean that only the, re the angels rejoice. In fact, you notice there it says that it's in the presence of the angels. It's a Semitic way of saying God rejoices. Without saying his name directly, God rejoices when there is repentance on the part of a sinner. When a sinner repents, God's heart sings. God loves to seek the lost. He loves to welcome them home. The heart of God is thrilled when the lost are found. I may not be speaking to anyone here today that says that's brand new news to me. I don't know that. But do we begin to recognize how privileged we are to know that our God rejoices when sinners repent? Do you know that vast numbers of people in this world have no such concept of their God? Their God is to be appeased. Their God would take repentance for granted if their God would recognize this at all. But we know that our God, His heart is filled with joy when people repent and turn back to Him. That's who He is. Jesus now has set them up as he speaks to these who are objecting to him and speaks to us as well. But he sets them up now, getting them going on this lost and found theme with what is the, one of the classic parables of Christ's ministry, the lost son and the father who receives him back. Verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, as we move into this parable, we want to be careful not to push the details of the parable theologically. In real life, it might even not be wise for a father to give such a son his estate upon such a request. This is not a parenting seminar that Jesus is presenting here. It's a simple story, and he just chooses a simple way and a quick way to point to a rebellious son. We, we can kind of get a sense of this son. I'm sick and tired of living here. There is life to be lived. I need to get away from mom and dad. I'm tired of this old, the same old song and dance. I need freedom. It's suffocating here. Father, I request my inheritance. Now, this wasn't normal for a Jewish culture for a son to receive an inheritance before his father died, nor do I think it would be very normal for us to ring our father's telephone and say, you know, I know you're going to die soon here. Would you mind giving me the inheritance that's going to come to me? I mean, this is one obnoxious request because it's one rebellious heart. And this young man takes that money, that estate from his, father, from his father's estate, and he takes off with it. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He's not coming back. He's not leaving a box in storage. He's not leaving a poster on his bedroom wall. 
He takes it all. He's not coming back. And he set off for a distant country. He wants anonymity. Money in the pocket. Youth. He puts distance between him and his father. Going to a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. There was no one to tell him no. He took it all and he spent it all. He squandered the entire fortune on reckless and debauched living. You can fill in the details. Christ doesn't here in the parable. But things go from bad to worse. As far as he's concerned, everything is wonderful. But then something happens. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, that's problem number one, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed, this young man, to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. For a Jewish young man to go to a distant country and to end up feeding swine was to hit rock bottom. Feeding pigs, but no one feeding him. And finally, for some reason, his empty stomach cleared his foggy head. And at verse 17, he came to his senses. That's an interpretive phrase, but gets it very well. He came to his senses. And he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. There's a lot there. His father's hired men were not even the slaves of the family. The slaves of the family were considered, in a sense, part of the family. A hired man was just a day laborer. All of a sudden, dad's table is looking pretty good. Not only was dad eating better, dad's day laborers were eating better than he was. And even the swine's cuisine was making him jealous. So verse 18, he says, I will set out. I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. This young man had come to the end of everything. He had been devastated. There was no more pride left. There was no more party in him. He was done. And he goes back to the father. He has made a fool of himself. He has shamed his father. He has despised his God. There is only one way now to turn and walk, and that is home. And so in humility and repentance, he does just that. The middle of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, that is, approaching now his father's estate, his father saw him. Freeze the frame right there. 
This man, according to the custom of the day, had just wasted one-third of his father's estate. And his father sees this rebellious son at a distance. What will he do? How will he respond? How would you respond? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The father is overwhelmed by compassion and he throws protocol to the wind. This was an undignified act for a father in that day. Sons ran to fathers. Fathers didn't run to sons. And when this son ran to his father, what he would expect is for the father, if he would even hear him and see him, to sit with stern face and to hear his words of repentance and then to decide whether or not he would forgive and restore. But this father... We sense the tears stinging his eyes. And we sense as his heart pounds and the joy overwhelms him and he sets all the protocol and the cultural dictates aside and he runs to his son and he embraces him and welcomes him home. And the son is truly repentant. He does not take his father's response for granted, but says, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The repentance is genuine. But the father said to his servants, Quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. You remember his proposed offer to become a servant? A day laborer. Day laborers didn't wear robes like this. They didn't wear a ring that symbolized their father's place, their place in their father's heart, and they didn't wear sandals. They went barefoot. It is a symbolic way of formally clothing him and showing him he belongs back in the family. It is amazing grace and the father continues bring the fattened calf and kill it let's have a feast and let's celebrate the fattened calf would be eaten only on important festival days but it is to be immediately slaughtered on this day because this day is as important as any festival why slaughter this calf? 
Why give this son these symbols of recognition and honor? Verse 24, here's the father's heart. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. A resurrection of sorts had, been taken, play, had taken place and the only thing to do now was to celebrate in restoration. To celebrate this restoration of the son. What a day of joy. What a day of gladness. And we sense as this celebration and this feast is going on, there is music and there is dancing and there is eating and there is rejoicing and everyone joins into the celebration. Everyone but one person. Verse 25, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. There's so many interesting parallels between these brothers. The one brother was gone in a, working with these swine and comes back toward the estate. Now we have this brother also coming out of the field and approaching the father's house. In verse 26, he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. You can see him calling a servant around and saying, I, I missed this memo. I, today was a work day as far as I'm concerned. What is going on here? There's a big celebration going on. The servant quickly fills him in. Verse 27, your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Remember what struck the father's heart when he saw his son? What is it that strikes this older brother's heart as he sees his brother? Something very, very different. The older brother became angry, verse 28. And he refused to go in. He refused to join the festival so his father went out and pleaded with him. We see now the father going out to his second son, meeting him away from the, the, the home and talking with him, calling him in. Ironically, now it's the older brother who is on the outside looking in. Mark Twain had a great line applicable at this point when he said, of this older brother, or said, and I apply to this older brother, he was a good man in the worst sense of the word. A great line. He was a good man in the worst sense of the word. And he stands up now and tells his father how good he was. Verse 29, he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Self-righteousness drips from his lips. And a common characteristic of the self-righteous is a feeling that they are not fairly recognized and that others are not fairly treated. Note his emphasis on performance. I have been slaving, and what have I gotten for it? One commentator says he did not really understand what being a son means. That is perhaps why he did not understand what being a father means. 
verse 30, he goes on, and now the attack turns. It's not only self-oriented, self-promoting, but his response in verse 30 goes on the attack against his, ver- his father. But, verse 30, when, his son, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. This son of yours, he won't even say that he's his brother. It's a phrase of great disdain, and it is an attack on the father's integrity. You treat immorality better than you treat fidelity. You would think the father would respond in anger at this point, but his response is very gracious when he says in verse 31, My son... You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. No goat. My estate belongs to you. And the love that I have for your brother is no deeper than the love that I have for you. When one child gets lost in a family of siblings, and the parents find that child... They hug that child and rejoice that that child has been found. Is that to say they don't appreciate the other siblings? Not at all. This child was lost and is found. That's in a sense what the father says. I don't love you any less, but your brother was lost and he's been found. It is only right that I rejoice And so he says, notice these words carefully, but we had to celebrate. The Greek word is perhaps even a bit more pointed. It was necessary for us to celebrate. It was essential. This is right. It was necessary that we celebrate and be glad Why? Because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he is found. If we are going to know the mind of God, we must know this. The repentance of sinners is, in God's way of thinking, cause for celebration. A dead man, now alive. A lost son, now found. You hold back this celebration and the rocks would cry out. God is rejoicing in heaven and I am going to rejoice here on earth, says the Father in the parable, reflecting, of course, the Father of heaven. But before we leave the brother in his stew, let's just stop and think about it. Does he have a point? He really does, doesn't he? I mean, on the face of things, rationally speaking, he really has a point. This young man has lived in a godless, wicked manner. He has harmed the family reputation. He has squandered the family resources. And now here we are honoring him and spending more resources on him. That's rational, but that's not godly. 
That's not who God is. He is more joyful when a sinner repents than to simply go through the logic of the situation. This is a profound parable. It finds its way in our own culture at places. You will see it and find it. And it is important that we properly interpret it and have, I think, through laying out what, has, what Jesus is saying. But let's stop for a few moments and contemplate further. First of all, I think it's very important that we properly interpret this passage. There are some who interpret this passage and say, this is how fathers should treat children. Well, that's not really the point of what Jesus is saying, and there's much more scripture on how fathers and children should relate to one another. This is just a parable. But it gets more twisted than that. For there are those who look at this parable and say, you see, there's no sacrifice here. And this is how God relates to sinners. There's no need for Jesus Christ to die on the cross. There's no such thing as substitutionary atonement. This parable proves that Jesus saw no need for substitutionary atonement. Now there's a great big fat agenda behind that whole idea which rejects all kinds of very pointed, specific declarations of substitutionary atonement in the New Testament. But that having been said, we need to be cautious how we put this into theology. It's a parable. And as a parable, I think the right interpretation is not to fill in all of the blanks about atonement and fill in all of the blanks about parental-child uh, relationships. The issue is simply to say, Jesus, what are you telling these people who are attacking you as you meet with sinners and tax collectors? And what is Jesus saying to us about God, his Father? I think what he is saying is that Jesus Christ is in the business of seeking out and finding those who are spiritually separated from him. And he is saying that our God rejoices in repentance. He celebrates the unbeliever. He celebrates the rebel who turns back to him in repentance. So I think these parables are indeed theological. They give us a vision of God and who he is. Do you know this God who rejoices when sinners repent? I, I think there has to be a formation of our spirit and our mind if we are going to really grasp what Jesus is saying here. There are some Christians whose view of the godless and the wicked sinners in this world, and there are many, I mean, do you not get excited in your heart, holy anger, when you read of a man who takes drugs and baits young people and draws them into the world of drug abuse and their world crashes in on itself and this man runs off and makes his money? That's wrong and it's evil and it's wicked. And does it not frustrate and anger us when we hear of individuals who are taking the lives of unborn children? and crushing their skulls with instruments. There is a lot of evil in this world. There are a lot of evil people in this world. 
And there is a right place for holy anger. But sometimes when some Christians view these evil people, it seems that they just lump them all together as people to be hated. And that's the end of the story. All those bad people out there in this world, how wicked they are, how vile they are, how they violate God's will and plan. Let's be mad, Christians. Now, there's something about what Jesus is saying here that really doesn't allow that to fly. We should see, as Jesus does, a world of sinners as lost sheep to be rescued. Do you have a shepherd's heart when you read the newspaper? Do you have a shepherd's heart when you read that magazine or you see that evening report of the vile actions of godless people? Do we sense there is a person who needs to be rescued? There is a person who needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. And that means that Jesus reclined at table with sinners. He got in the mix with the people no one else wanted to talk to and no one else wanted to see. You know, there may be, well be a person that you work with who commits adultery and terribly harms his or her family. Who does something in their life that is so wicked and stupid that everybody at your workplace despises that person and won't talk to them. And you're angered by it too. Would you think sitting down and having lunch with that person? Or would you just join the self-righteous and say, I don't want anything to do with a sinner like that? Would you reach out and be the one in your office, in your workplace, or perhaps in your neighborhood and say, I will sit down and I will eat with that sinner because that sinner needs to be saved? Or will you join the Pharisee who stands back in self-righteousness and says, they are evil and leave them go on to hell? Jesus forces us here to look at the lost world in a certain way. Not to join the sin but to be a rescuer of sinners. Jesus will forgive and he will receive those who turn from their sin and come to him. And as you reach out to a lost world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ and draw sinners back to God, you can know that the heart of God rejoices. We need to know this about our God. He rejoices in repentance. He celebrates those who turn from sin and come back to Him. And it is a call for us to join His effort and to reach out and to celebrate those who turn from wrong. Why is this? What is it in the nature of God that causes Him to so rejoice when He finds the lost 
when they turn from their sin and come back, what is it in the nature of God? I think if we could put a word to it, it is love. The love of God desires communion and intimacy and oneness. And what is sin but a distance and a separation from God? And so you notice even in the physical way that Christ tells this parable, the young man in sin comes back to the Father. There is a reuniting There is a bringing back into the circle of oneness, and that's what's in the heart of God. He loves people because He is a God of love. He wants them to come back to Him and to fellowship with Him, and that's where sinners are. Their sin is not ultimately against us. Their sin is ultimately against God, and their sin is a distance from Him. He wants to close the gap, and He wants to use you and me to help close that gap. So who should we reach out to? We need to reach out to one another. But we need to reach out past us and to reach into the lives of people that are separated from God and bridge the gap and bring them back and know that our God is a shepherd who seeks the lost. May we be ever seeking the lost. You got a real wicked sinner in your neighborhood, in your school, at your workplace, What a great opportunity to bring someone back to the light. Don't avoid the wicked. Go out and get them. That's what brings joy to the heart of God and how distinctive Christianity is at this very place from all of the other world religions. The world religions have some sense of an exclusive club There are those on the higher echelon who join into the gnosis, into the ultimate knowledge or the ultimate spiritual experience. They are the enlightened ones. They are the better ones. They are the elite. Jesus Christ brings God down to terra firma, right down on the carpet. And he says, everyone can come. You must come in simple repentance But whoever you are, you can come. Has the Good Shepherd found you? If I speak with anyone here who knows that there is sin between you and God, you can know that God longs for you to return to Him in repentance. But you will need to come, as did this young man in the parable, repentant and leaving your sin. If you're happy living in the sin, There's no reconciliation to the Father. But if you're willing to leave it behind and come back to Him in repentance, He will receive you back with joy. You know, God doesn't have to do that. He's God. But He does because our God is at the core of His being a God of love. And so he says, come. Leave the sin that separates you from me and leave it there, turning back and coming into my presence. And I stand here with open arms. Come back. Leave the sin and come into the light 
of God's glory and relationship. Perhaps that's even where you are as a Christian. And you know that there is a distance between you and God because of sin in your life. Will you not choose to turn today and to put joy in the heart of your Father? What do you really have to leave? Nothing but what is holding you back. What do you have to gain? A joyful reception from your Father. Come back. Turn from your sin. Walk into His Walk into his presence, and he will embrace you. What joy and what grace. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, God, for this truth from the words from the lips of Jesus Christ. And I pray, I, I don't know how to succeed ultimately in grasping what's here and getting this overwhelming sense that there is so much more to tap. I don't know how to focus on what we should ultimately, but I pray that there would be in our hearts through this endeavor together in your word today a sense of who you are and how we should respond to a lost world, reaching the lost as Jesus did and rejoicing as you do when sinners come to repentance. May we love repentance. And may we love you, dear God, for your love for us. I pray that you'd reach down to us and teach us in our sin the joy of repentance. Draw to yourself any that are in rebellion. And Lord, to a degree, we all have rebellion in our heart. Help us to lay it aside and to turn and to come back. And I pray that we would be a church that rejoices in repentance. We would be a church that rejoices in those who have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to believers who turn from their sin and embrace you. May that be true of us. And God, whatever we're missing here, help us to see it as we filter this truth and as the Spirit takes it and teaches our hearts. May we sing with joy now as we respond in the name of Christ. Amen.